Chapter Six, Part Two of Principles of Geology. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Abai in July two thousand nineteen. Principles of Geology by Charles Lyell, Chapter Six, Part Two in order to explain how so many animals can find support in this region it is suggested that the underwood of which their food chiefly consists may contain much nutriment in a small bulk and also that the vegetation has a rapid growth for no sooner is a part consumed than its place says dr smith is supplied by a fresh stock nevertheless after making every allowance for this successive production and consumption it is clear from the facts above cited that the quantity of food required by the larger herbivora is much less than we have usually imagined mr darwin conceives that the amount of vegetation supported at any one time by great britain may exceed in a tenfold ratio the quantity existing on an equal area in the interior parts of southern africa it is remarked moreover in illustration of the small connection discoverable between abundance of food and the magnitude of indigenous mammalia that while in the desert part of southern africa there are so many huge animals in brazil where the splendor and exuberance of the vegetation are unrivaled there is not a single wild quadruped of large size it would doubtless be impossible for herds of mammoths and rhinoceroses to subsist at present throughout the year even in the southern part of siberia covered as it is with snow during winter but there is no difficulty in supposing a vegetation capable of nourishing these great quadrupeds to have once flourished between the latitudes forty degrees and sixty degrees north dr fleming has hinted that the kind of food which the existing species of elephant prefers will not enable us to determine or even to offer a probable conjecture concerning that of the extinct species no one acquainted with the gramineous character of the food of our fallow deer stag or roe would have assigned a lichen to the reindeer travellers mention that even now when the climate of eastern asia is so much colder than the same parallels of latitude farther west there are woods not only of fir but of birch on the banks of the lena as far north as latitude sixty degrees it has moreover been suggested that as in our own times the northern animal migrate so the siberian elephant and rhinoceros may have wandered towards the north in summer the musk oxen annually desert their winter quarters in the south and cross the sea upon the ice to graze for four months from may to september on the rich pasturage of melvin island in latitude seventy five degrees the mammoths without passing so far beyond the arctic circle may nevertheless have made excursions during the heat of a brief northern summer from the central or temperate parts of asia to the sixtieth parallel of latitude now in this case the preservation of their bones or even occasionally of their entire carcasses in ice or frozen soil may be accounted for 
without resorting to speculations concerning sudden revolutions in the former state and climate of the earth's surface we are entitled to assume that in the time of the extinct elephant and rhinoceros the lowland of siberia was less extensive towards the north than now for we have seen that the strata of this lowland in which the fossil bones lie buried were originally deposited beneath the sea and we know from the facts brought to light in wrangell's voyage in the year eighteen twenty one eighteen twenty two and eighteen twenty three that a slow upheaval of the land along the borders of the icy sea is now constantly taking place similar to that experienced in part of sweden in the same manner then as the shores of the gulf of bosnia are extended not only by the influx of sediment brought down by rivers but also by the elevation and consequent drying up of the bed of the sea so a like combination of causes may in modern times have been extending the low tract of land where marine shells and fossil bones occur in siberia such a change in the physical geography of that region implying a constant augmentation in the quantity of arctic land would according to principles to be explained in the next chapter tend to increase the severity of the winters we may conclude therefore that before the land reached so far to the north the temperature of the siberian winter and summer was more nearly equalized and a greater degree of winter's cold may even more than a general diminution of the mean annual temperature have finally contributed to the extermination of the mammoth and its contemporaries on referring to the map the reader will see how all the great rivers of siberia flow at present from south to north from temperate to arctic regions and they are all liable like the mackenzie in north america to remarkable floods in consequence of flowing in this direction for they are filled with running water in their upper or southern course when completely frozen over for several hundred miles near their mouths where they remain blocked up by ice for six months in every year the descending waters therefore finding no open channel rush over the ice often changing their direction and sweeping along forests and prodigious quantities of soil and gravel mixed with ice now the rivers of siberia are among the largest in the world and yenisei having a course of two thousand five hundred the lena of two thousand miles so that we may easily conceive that the bodies of animals which fall into their waters may be transported to vast distances towards the arctic sea and before arriving there may be stranded upon and often frozen into thick ice afterwards when the ice breaks up they may be floated still farther towards the ocean until at length they become buried in fluviatile and submarine deposits near the mouths of rivers humboldt remarks that near the mouths of the lena a considerable thickness of frozen soil may be found at all seasons at the depth of a few feet so that if a carcass be once embedded in mud and ice in such a region and in such a climate its putrefaction may be arrested for indefinite ages according to professor von beer of st petersburg the ground is now frozen permanently to the depth of four hundred feet at the town of yakutsk 
on the western bank of the lena in latitude sixty two degrees north six hundred miles distant from the polar sea mr Hedenstrom tells us that throughout a wide area in siberia the boundary cliffs of the lakes and rivers consist of alternate layers of earthy materials and ice in horizontal stratification and mr mittendorf informed us in eighteen forty six that in his tour there three years before he had bored in siberia to the depth of seventy feet and after passing through much frozen soil mixed with ice had come down upon a solid mass of pure transparent ice the thickness of which after penetrating two or three yards they did not ascertain we may conceive therefore that even at the period of the mammoth when the lowland of siberia was less extensive towards the north and consequently the climate more temperate than now the cold may still have been sufficiently intense to cause the rivers flowing in their present direction to sweep down from south to north the bodies of drowned animals and there bury them in drift ice and frozen mud if it be true that the carcass of the mammoth was embedded in pure ice there are two ways in which it may have been frozen in we may suppose the animal to have been overwhelmed by drift snow i have been informed by dr richardson that in the northern parts of america comprising regions now inhabited by many herbivorous quadrupeds the drift snow is often converted into permanent glaciers it is commonly blown over the edges of steep cliffs so as to form an inclined talus hundreds of feet high and when a thaw commences torrents rush from the land and throw down from the top of the cliff alluvial soil and gravel this new soil soon becomes covered with vegetation and protects the foundation of snow from the rays of the sun water occasionally penetrates into the crevices and pores of the snow but as it soon freezes again it serves the more rapidly to consolidate the mass into a compact iceberg it may sometimes happen that cattle grazing in a valley at the base of such cliffs on the borders of a sea or river may be overwhelmed and at length enclosed in solid ice and then transported towards the polar regions or a herd of mammoths returning from their summer pastures in the north may have been surprised while crossing a stream by the sudden congelation of the waters the missionary huck relates in his travels in tibet in eighteen forty six that after many of his party had been frozen to death they pitched their tents on the banks of the mourois ousson which lower down becomes the famous blue river and saw from their encampment some black shapeless objects ranged in file across the stream as they advanced nearer no change either in form or distinctness was apparent nor was it till they were quite close that they recognized in them a troop of the wild oxen called yak by the tibetans there were more than fifty of them encrusted in the ice no doubt they had tried to swim across at the moment of congelation and had been unable to disengage themselves their beautiful heads surmounted by huge horns were still above the surface but their bodies were held fast in the ice which was so transparent that the position of the imprudent beasts was easily distinguishable they looked as if still swimming 
but the eagles and ravens had pecked out their eyes. The foregoing investigations, therefore, lead us to infer that the mammoth and some other extinct quadrupeds fitted to live in high latitudes were inhabitants of northern Asia at a time when the geographical conditions and climate of that continent were different from the present. But the age of this fauna was comparatively modern in the Earth's history. It appears that when the oldest or Eocene tertiary deposits were formed, a warm temperature pervaded the European seas and lands. Shells of the genus Nautilus and other forms characteristic of tropical latitudes, fossil reptiles such as the crocodile, turtle and tortoise, plants such as palms, some of them allied to the coconut, the screw pine, the custard apple and the acacia, all lead to this conclusion. This flora and fauna were followed by those of the Miocene formation, in which indications of a southern but less tropical climate are detected. Finally, the Pliocene deposits, which come next in succession, exhibit in their organic remains a much nearer approach to the state of things now prevailing in corresponding latitudes. It was towards the close of this period that the seas of the northern hemisphere became more and more filled with floating icebergs, often charged with erratic blocks, so that the waters and the atmosphere were chilled by the melting ice, and an arctic fauna enabled, for a time, to invade the temperate latitudes both of North America and Europe. The extinction of a considerable number of land quadrupeds and aquatic mollusca was gradually brought about by the increasing severity of the cold, but many species survived this revolution in climate, either by their capacity of living under a variety of conditions, or by migrating for a time to more southern lands and seas. At length, by modifications in the physical geography of the northern regions, and the cessation of floating ice on the eastern side of the Atlantic, the cold was moderated, and a milder climate ensued, such as we now enjoy in Europe. Proofs from fossils in secondary and still older strata A great interval of time appears to have elapsed between the formation of the secondary strata, which constitute the principal portion of the elevated land in Europe, and the origin of the Eocene deposits. If we examine the rocks from the chalk to the new red sandstone inclusive, we find many distinct assemblages of fossils entombed in them, all of unknown species, and many of them referable to genera and families now most abundant between the tropics. Among the most remarkable are reptiles of gigantic size, some of them herbivorous, others carnivorous, and far exceeding in size any now known even in the torrid zone. The genera are for the most part extinct, but some of them, as the crocodile and monitor, have still representatives in the warmer parts of the earth. Coral reefs also were evidently numerous in the seas of the same periods, composed of species often belonging to genera now characteristics of a tropical climate. The number of large chambered shells also, including the Nautilus, leads us to infer an elevated temperature, and the associated fossil plants, although imperfectly known, tend to the same conclusion, 
the Cycadiae constituting the most numerous family. But it is from the more ancient coal deposits that the most extraordinary evidence has been supplied in proof of the former existence of a very different climate, a climate which seems to have been moist, warm, and extremely uniform, in those very latitudes which are now the colder, and, in regard to temperature, the most variable regions of the globe. We learn from the researches of Adolphe Brognard, Goeppert, and other botanists that in the flora of the Carboniferous era there was a great predominance of ferns, some of which were arborescent, as, for example, Colopterus, Protopterus, and Saronius. Nor can this be accounted for, as some have supposed, by the greater power which ferns possess of resisting maceration in water. This prevalence of ferns indicates a moist, equable, and temperate climate, and the absence of any severe cold, for such are the conditions which, at the present day, are found to be most favourable to that tribe of plants. It is only in the islands of the tropical oceans, and of the southern temperate zones such as Norfolk Island, Otaheite, the Sandwich Islands, Tristan da Cunha, and New Zealand, that we find any near approach to that remarkable preponderance of ferns which is characteristic of the carboniferous flora. It has been observed that tree ferns and other forms of vegetation which flourished most luxuriantly within the tropics extend to a much greater distance from the equator in the southern hemisphere than in the northern, being found even as far as 46 degrees south latitude in New Zealand. There is little doubt that this is owing to the more uniform and moist climate occasioned by the greater proportional area of sea. Next to ferns and pines, the most abundant vegetable forms in the coal formation are the calamites, lepidodendra, sigillariae, and stigmariae. These were formerly considered to be so closely allied to tropical genera and to be so much greater in size than the corresponding tribes now inhabiting equatorial latitudes, that they were thought to imply an extremely hot, as well as humid and equable climate. But recent discoveries respecting the structure and relations of these fossil plants have shown that they deviated so widely from all existing types in the vegetable world that we have more reason to infer from this evidence a widely different climate in the Carboniferous era, as compared to that now prevailing, than a temperature extremely elevated. Palms, if not entirely wanting when the strata of the Carboniferous group were deposited, appear to have been exceedingly rare. The Coniferae, on the other hand, so abundantly met within the coal, resemble Araucariae in structure, a family of the fir tribe, characteristic at present of the milder regions of the southern hemisphere, such as Chile, Brazil, New Holland, and Norfolk Island. In regard to the geographical extent of the ancient vegetation, it was not confined, says Monsieur Brognard, to a small space, as to Europe, for example, for the same forms are met with again at great distances. Thus, the coal plants of North America are, for the most part, identical with those of Europe, and all belong to the same genera. Some specimens also from Greenland are referable to ferns, 
analogous to those of our European coal mines. The fossil plants brought from Melville Island, although in a very imperfect state, have been supposed to warrant similar conclusions, and assuming that they agree with those of Baffin's Bay, mentioned by Monsieur Brognard, how shall we explain the manner in which such a vegetation lived through an arctic night of several months' duration? It may seem premature to discuss this question until the true nature of the fossil flora of the arctic regions has been more accurately determined, yet, as the question has attracted some attention, let us assume for a moment that the coal plants of Melville Island are strictly analogous to those of the strata of Northumberland, would such a fact present an inexplicable enigma to the vegetable physiologist? Plants, it is affirmed, cannot remain in darkness, even for a week, without serious injury, unless in a torpid state, and if exposed to heat and moisture they cannot remain torpid, but will grow, and must therefore perish. If then, in the latitude of Melville Island, 75 degrees north, a high temperature and consequent humidity prevailed at that period when we know the arctic seas were filled with corals and large multilocular shells how could plants of tropical forms have flourished is not the bright light of equatorial regions as indispensable a condition of their well-being as the sultry heat of the same countries and how could they annually endure a night prolonged for three months now, in reply to this objection, we must bear in mind, in the first place, that, so far as experiments have been made, there is every reason to conclude that the range of intensity of light to which living plants can accommodate themselves is far wider than that of heat. No palms or tree ferns can live in our temperate latitudes without protection from the cold, but when placed in hot houses they grow luxuriantly, even under a cloudy sky and where much light is intercepted by the glass and framework at st petersburg in latitude sixty degrees north these plants have been successfully cultivated in hothouses although there they must exchange the perpetual equinox of their native regions for days and nights which are alternately protracted to nineteen hours and shortened to five how much farther towards the pole they might continue to live, provided a due quantity of heat and moisture were supplied, has not yet been determined, but St. Petersburg is probably not the utmost limit, and we should expect that in latitude 65 degrees at least, where they would never remain 24 hours without enjoying the sun's light, they might still exist. It should also be borne in mind, in regard to tree ferns, that they grow in the gloomiest and darkest parts of the forest of warm and temperate regions, even extending to nearly the 46th degree of south latitude in New Zealand. In equatorial countries, says Humboldt, they abound chiefly in the temperate, humid, and shady parts of mountains. As we know, therefore, that elevation often compensates for the effect of latitude in the geographical distribution of plants, we may easily understand that a class of vegetables, which grows at a certain height in the torrid zone, would flourish on the plains at greater distances from the equator, if the temperature, moisture, and other necessary conditions were equally uniform throughout the year.
nor must we forget that in all the examples above alluded to we have been speaking of living species but the coal plants were of perfectly distinct species nay few of them except the ferns and pines can be referred to genera or even families of the existing vegetable kingdom having a structure therefore and often a form which appears to the botanist so anomalous they may also have been endowed with a different constitution enabling them to bear a greater variation of circumstances in regard to light we find that particular species of plants and tree ferns require at present different degrees of heat and that some species can thrive only in the immediate neighbourhood of the equator others only a distance from it in the same manner the minimum of light sufficient for the now existing species cannot be taken as the standard for all analogous tribes that may ever have flourished on the globe but granting that the extreme northern point to which a flora like that of the carboniferous era could ever reach may be somewhere between the latitudes of sixty five degrees and seventy degrees we should still have to inquire whether the vegetable remains might not have been drifted from thence by rivers and currents to the parallel of melville island or still farther in the northern hemisphere at present we see that the materials for future beds of lignite and coal are becoming amassed in high latitudes far from the districts where the forests grew and on shores where scarcely a stunted shrub can now exist the mackenzie and other rivers of north america carry pines with their roots attached for many hundred miles towards the north into the arctic sea where they are embedded in deltas and some of them drifted still farther by currents towards the pole before we can decide on this question of transportation we must know whether the fossil coal plants occurring in high latitudes bear the marks of friction and of having decayed previously to fossilization many appearances in our english coal fields certainly prove that the plants were not floated from great distances for the outline of the stems of succulent species preserve their sharp angles and others have their surfaces marked with the most delicate lines and streaks long leaves also are attached in many instances to the trunks or branches and leaves we know in general are soon destroyed when steeped in water although ferns will retain their forms after an immersion of many months it seems fair to presume that most of the coal plants grew upon the same land which supplied materials for the sandstones and conglomerates of the strata in which they are embedded the coarseness of the particles of many of these rocks attest that they were not born from very remote localities and there was land therefore in the vicinity wasting away by the action of moving waters the progress also of modern discovery has led to the very general admission of the doctrine that beds of coal have for the most part been formed of the remains of trees and plants that grew on the spot where the coal now exists the land having been successively submerged so that a covering of mud and sand was deposited upon accumulations of vegetable matter that such has been the origin of some coal seams is proved by the upright position of fossil trees both in europe and america in which the roots terminate downwards in beds of coal 
To return, therefore, from this digression, the flora of the coal appears to indicate a uniform and mild temperature in the air, while the fossils of the contemporaneous mountain limestone, comprising abundance of lamelliferous corals, large chambered cephalopods, and crinoidea, naturally lead us to infer a considerable warmth in the waters of the northern sea of the carboniferous period so also in regard to strata older than the coal they contain in high northern latitudes mountain masses of corals which must have lived and grown on the spot and large chambered univalves such as orthocerata and nautilus all seeming to indicate even in regions bordering on the arctic circle the former prevalence of a temperature more elevated than that now prevailing the warmth and humidity of the air and the uniformity of climate both in the different seasons of the year and in different latitudes appears to have been most remarkable when some of the oldest of the fossiliferous strata were formed the approximation to a climate similar to that now enjoyed in these latitudes does not commence till the era of the formations termed tertiary and while the different tertiary rocks were deposited in succession from the eocene to the pliocene the temperature seems to have been lowered and to have continued to diminish even after the appearance upon the earth of a considerable number of the existing species the cold reaching its maximum of intensity in european latitudes during the glacial epoch or the epoch immediately antecedent to that in which all the species now contemporary with man were in being. End of chapter 6, part 2